Good morning. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Uh, <clears throat> this is a, a really important text. I guess you can say all of them are very important texts. Um, last week I got to deal with the controversial subject of marriage and divorce. This week is a lot easier because I get to talk to you about your money, right? Uh, because that's what we love to do as preachers. We just love to go at it that way. And that really is one of the beautiful things about uh, going through a text of the Bible because you got to stay with it, right? You just got to keep going with it and you just got to figure out what it says and figure out what it's saying to us today in the 21st century. And so, you know, this is one of those very, um, very interesting passages. Less than a year ago, there was a study that came out, um, and it showed that um, the richer we get as Americans, the less happy we become. And this study that was published in this journal, and it's of, of human behavior, it showed that those in the United States who reach a household income of $105,000 a year, that they are less happy than those who make less. And they tended to be associated with a reduced life satisfaction and a lower level of well-being. And it's not just the adults who make the money, it's also the children who live in those homes. And what they found is children who live in these homes of 105,000 and more, that they are more prone to suffer from depression, anxiety, and substance abuse than those who come from a less affluent families. The study goes on and says the more we get, the more we want. And one uh, psychologist referred to this as this treadmill effect. Her name was Elizabeth Lombardo. And she says, we think external things we buy will bring us happiness but then we get them and we wonder what next the problem is material possessions don't make us happier experiences and having more time to do things we love and with people we love is what drives happiness a rich man comes to jesus and he's got a very important question. There are two important questions that drive the entire text. And I really believe we are meant to figure out which one it is that we ask. Which one is it that we live by? So let's just jump into it in verse 17, because that's exactly what happens. It just jumps right into it. And it says, and as he was setting, or as he was setting out on his journeys, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here's the first big question that we find here in the text. As far as we know, he's the first to ask this question. We don't even find the disciples asking this question. It is a question of all questions, is it not? I mean, it's about why God left the splendors of heaven and came here to take on our frail human nature. 
It's, it's about how can we have eternal life. And I don't believe this is like the Pharisees. Remember, the Pharisees approached Jesus last week, and we're supposed to see these contrasts. And he appro- they used the Pharisees approach last week, and they are there to trick Jesus, to trap him. There's nothing in this that makes us doubt this man's sincerity at all. That's not why he's here. And I would say that the question that he asks is a question that probably most of us, if not all of us, have asked at some point in our lives and may even ask that question on a daily basis. And it seems like this is the right question. But as we continue through the text, Jesus guides us. He's trying to bring us to a better question. So we keep going. Let's go to verses 18 through 20. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? (laughs) No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, so he asks this question, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus comes back with a question of his own. And it's not, the, the, this first question that Jesus brings up here is, it's not one that we really expect to come out of this question. And he says, why do you call me good? Because he just called him good teacher. And it's like, why do you call me good? And it's, not, it's like an odd question, isn't it? And, and usually... In the, these writers, they were so specific in their writings, they put things in there that make us say, why is that there? It, it seems a little strange. He's asking about eternal life, but he's saying, well, why are you calling me good? And the man, it may be that he identifies himself as good. It's very possible. And he would have good reasons for it because Jesus says, well, look, you know the commandments. And then he starts rattling off. And the ones he rattles off are five, six, seven, eight, and nine of the ten commands. Or the ten words. Whatever you want to call them there. How's he done? He says, I've done this since my youth. This is, this is fantastic. And we do not need to undermine what this man says here. Because he has been very zealous to follow good laws that have been given by a good God. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, well, I've done all of this. So he's basically, in his question, what he's really asking him is what more should I do to inherit eternal life? And there's there's, there's a very important phrase there, I do. And no, we're not talking about the marriage passage anymore. If he follows the law, why is he worried that there may be something else he must do? Have you thought about that? Why is he coming to Jesus if he has been zealous and been a law keeper since the time of his youth? Because there's something that seems to be missing. You see, keeping commands and keeping laws and rules... It doesn't satisfy us. It doesn't make us feel that we're okay. 
And I've, I've, I've had people ask me this question so many times over the years in my 27 years of ministry in different places, different states and everything else, and people who are dying and they worry about their eternal state. And they wonder, is there something else that I should have done? Or I should have done more? And they're sincere. These are people who are always there for church. These are people who are good citizens in their community. These are people who've done a lot of good for others. They read their Bibles. But yet, here they are, and they're wondering, is there something else? There's this sense that there's something more that I must do. And just like the rich man, they wonder if there's something lacking in order for them to inherit eternal life. So we keep going. Whew, get ready. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. <laughs> if you struggle wondering if you have done enough, are you ready to go and sell everything you have this next week and give it all to the poor? I'll just let that sink in for a moment. How you doing? Why is Jesus doing this? I mean, seriously. I mean, you know, for one, Jesus, he loved the rich man. Did you see that in the text? That's so important for us to see. It, it, don't, don't pass that up. It, you know, right after he says these commands and everything else, I, I've done this since my youth, he looks, he looks at the rich man and he says, and, and, he, and, he, and it says there that he loved him. There's something about this rich man that is admirable. This is a man who has kept God's law in a world that doesn't want to keep God's law. He's lived uh, as far as, as, as we consider it. He's lived a good life, a decent life. But because Jesus loved him, he told him what he needed to hear and not what he didn't want to hear. And I think this, when we talk about discipleship, and this whole section, folks, Mark, its whole book is about being a disciple of Jesus and what that's like. And when we talk about discipleship and we discipling between each other, it's about us sharing with others Maybe not what they always want to hear, but what, because we love them, they, they need to hear. And that's a totally different kind of love than the world speaks about. And that's why it's always in conflict with the love of God. And, and they try to even say that God's love is not real love. Because the world says that we are, um, really, we are to make people feel good about their goodness. So rather than telling people, 
what they need to hear, we tell them what they want to hear. And we just want to confirm what they already believe about themselves. But here's the thing about Jesus. You hadn't figured it out already. Jesus is not interested in making you feel good about yourself. He's interested in making you like God. He didn't tell Zacchaeus, who was a wealthy tax collector, he didn't say, go out and sell everything you have and give it to the poor before you come follow me. The interesting thing is Zacchaeus went out and he gave half of his goods to the poor and then he paid back the people that he cheated, but he wasn't told this. Jesus met in homes, large homes. These would have been wealthy homes where, where crowds could come in and they could gather. And Jesus never told those people, you need to sell, sell and get down to one that you can barely get into um, and give the rest of the proceeds to that to the poor. And you may be thinking, well, whew, I thought you were telling us we have to sell everything we have and give to the poor. I don't know, maybe. Maybe it's, it's really depending on where you are, because that's, that's what this is about. It's not about adding a new commandment to the ten. It's not saying, okay, we got eleven commands now. No, it's about where this man is. Does, does God rule your life, or are you ruled by your, by your money, or in, in pursuit of money, or is it possessions? and having nice things, what, what drives your life? And, and do those things over here, does it dictate what you do over here? What, what is important to you? And Jesus, in talking to this man, this individual, he says, this is where you are. And you feel this sense of self-satisfaction and pride in what you have and who you are. And there's a problem. So he wanted to have eternal life. But what he did not want is, is to be led by Jesus. You see that? He's not wanting to, be, to follow Jesus. He simply wants another rule so that he can follow it and he can continue to live the same complacent life that he had lived before. He doesn't want to change him. He just wants something new to add. Let me ask you something. And, and when we think about following laws and this kind of thing, what's easier? Just think in terms of the Ten Commands. What's easier? Not murdering someone or loving your enemy? What's easier? Not stealing from someone or sharing what is yours with others. What's easier, honoring your parents or honoring the outcast? You see, Jesus is asking us to change our, in, our culture of who we are and for it to be what Jesus wants us to be. And if you haven't seen it already, there is irony in what we just talked about last week. All right, you're, you think, listen, all this connects in. It's so, it's so fantastic. So last week we talked about marriage, and we talked about the image of God, and how, you know, in the image of God there was the one that was made up of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. They are one, and they create life, new life. 
and then the two become, you know, eventually they find someone to marry, and, and these two from different families, they become one family unit, and, and they then, they create more life, and we stay in this image, and so we get to this part about the children, and then we see these children, and they're coming to Jesus, and the disciples are trying to stop them and everything else, and suddenly we realize that it's not just talking about what he's just talked about, he's talking about what he's now talking about this week. Because here you see the children, and they lacked nothing. Or they actually, yeah, they lacked nothing, but they possessed nothing. And now this week we see with the rich man, he possesses everything, but he lacks something. And it's like, well, that doesn't make sense, right? They have nothing. And he says, but they lack nothing to enter the kingdom of God. This guy seems to have it more together, but he's lacking something in his life. And it's like, well, what is this trying to tell us? It's trying to tell us we've got to have that sense of poverty of ourselves and who we are. That we don't reach the kingdom of God because of what I do. We don't reach it because I'm good. We reach it because he's good. And it's out of that need that we have and we realize who we are before a holy God. It's out of that need that we're blessed. Remember what, he said, what it said about the children? And he took them in his arms and he blessed them and laying his hands on them. Did the rich man find satisfaction in wealth? Did he feel like his life is absolutely complete? Did, did that do it for him? Well, evidently not, because here he is before Jesus, and he's wanting to know, what more do I need to do? And the same can be said of following laws. Why send our Savior? Send a Savior to save us for something that we could do ourselves. Why, we can pay homage to the cross and we can pay homage to the resurrection of Jesus, but we can still think that, tem, that, that salvation is up to us. That it's what I do. But he says we are to be like children who have nothing to bring. We have nothing to boast in. Our world does not see a need for God. Do you know why? Because we look at our own goodness and we say, well, I'm a good and decent person. And we can be very offended if someone says, well, you need a savior. Because what they're hearing is that you're a terrible, no good person. Jesus looked at the rich man and he loved him. There was something admirable about him, but he cannot save himself. Only God is good. Only God is good. Salvation is beyond human power to achieve. So we keep going. He's walked away, right? So verse 23, he says, And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. This is just totally foreign. 
But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? That's the second big question. And that is the right question. You may say, well, it's the same question, right? I mean, he's coming and saying, what must I do to be saved? And they're, they're over here saying, well, who can be? No, 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 they're, they're, no, they're not. Because over here, he says he looks at something he must do in order to inherit eternal life. Here, the disciples, they, this, this, what Jesus says, shocks them so much, they, they just have to enter themselves. And they, they have to look within themselves. They're not, they're not looking at the rich man anymore. They're looking at themselves and everyone else. And they say, well, then who? Who can be saved then? It's impossible. You know, little children have, they don't have a real concept for money, do they? You don't believe it? Take them somewhere. <laughs> and teenagers, most teenagers don't. Some do, especially those who work jobs and they pay different bills. They, they've got a concept. But we adults, we get it, right? We know how hard it is to make money and also to keep that money. We also know how money will allow us to buy things that we want as well as needs, but also the things that we want, and it can make our lives easier. And that's why we can fall prey to money and possessions, because we become deceived into thinking that somehow they will satisfy us. The rich man's not satisfied, despite everything that he has. And I think many of us, if we are honest with ourselves, we can say, you know what, we find this difficult too. When we think about just giving 10% of what we have back to God who blessed us, it's like, oh man, that seems like a lot. Okay, well go sell all that you have and give it to the poor so you can be saved. Now you're ready. It can be as difficult as trying to squeeze a camel through the eye of a sewing needle. It's very painful for a camel, by the way. This is the one thing the rich man lacked. This is not about giving away possessions, folks. It's about being ruled by them. This, the disciples are shocked. And we should be shocked too. Because we struggle. We work hard and we do those things so we can provide for ourselves and for our families. And we don't want ever to think that we have to depend on anyone else. We don't like that feeling. But Jesus is trying to get us to that feeling that we can't depend on ourselves. You see this? You ever mismanaged your money? Have you ever bought something that you wanted? That was not a need. And I'm not saying, listen, none of us are perfect in that. I, listen, I can tell you myself, I'm not. That doesn't necessarily mean a person is ruled by it, but we, we're going to always struggle with it. 
Wednesday night, we talked about this fantastic Christian couple that's a part of this church and, and how they have looked at their money as this is God's and they've done some amazing things. But I guarantee you, they would also tell you, well, you know what? We haven't always been perfect. And that's the point. Who can be saved? Who? Just so happens Jesus has an answer. Verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Folks, it's impossible to live perfectly. It's impossible to never struggle with possessions. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing better. But it means that we're going to fail and we're going to have a sense of guilt and, and wonder if we're saved based upon our own goodness. The man asked Jesus, what must I do? What must I do? And he declared that he had kept the law and he felt like, I'm doing good. Or at least he felt like if there's another law or rule to follow, then if I do that, then I do, and therefore I am saved. Here's something Paul wrote in Romans 10, verse 2 and 3. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Now look at that. That's a good thing. Zeal for God. But, he says, it's not according to knowledge. That's not a good thing. For being ignorant. Now, this is important. What are they ignorant of? Of the righteousness that comes from God. And seeking to establish their own. He's talking about their own righteousness. Their own goodness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. The rich man is simply... Jesus is showing him he's not ready to submit to the righteousness of God. To follow Jesus, we have to completely to surrender ourselves. Perfection is not the point, folks. What we lack, we turn over to God. And what is impossible for us becomes possible with God. And if we evaluate our own lives as we encounter these texts and we have gone through, you know, spiritual pride, we've talked about marriage and we've talked about divorce and we've talked about finances now and other things. And if we look at these texts and we say to ourselves, I've kept these things from my youth, you have a very watered down version of what these things mean. We have got to steer away from this desire to soften the radical demands of Jesus or to try to make them apply to someone else. When the disciples heard what Jesus said to the rich man, it drove them inwardly. And when we hear what Jesus says to the rich man, it's supposed to drive us inwardly. We do better to confess to God that we are weak rather than to look for loopholes so that we can continue to live a complacent life. It's easier for me just to give another rule than it is for me to submit my life to Jesus. 
What Jesus offers is not dependent upon what we do. It's dependent upon what he has done. And he's going to come right off of this into next week. And he starts off with the third prediction. That's not a coincidence. Eternal life does not depend on human ability. It comes from the one who makes all things possible. Not finished. We're getting close, though. Verse 28. Peter began to say to him, okay, it's Peter speaking, so it's like, okay, get ready, right? Get ready. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. Don't you love that? Jesus, we did what the rich man didn't do. And, and, and Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, permit, with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. That's what the man had been asking about. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter's like, okay, well, we've given up our lives. What's in it for us? And I love that because Jesus does not jump all over him. He doesn't say, get behind me, Satan, like he had done, you know, a couple of chapters ago. He simply says, he, just, he doesn't miss a, a beat, really. He just says, look, you're going to receive a hundredfold. Wow. Christian faith, folks, is not an insurance policy that, that we're, we're going to have an easy life. Because in the midst of all of these blessings, he says, but there will be persecution. Let me tell you, you live this upside-down kind of philosophy of life, which Jesus is teaching us, whether it be about marriage, or whether it be about our finances, or whether it be about you know, pride and, and trying to you know, to make ourselves supreme and these kind of, and you live a completely different life than that of the world, your world will reject you. In fact, they'll even hate you. But he says, look, it's okay because you're going to receive a hundredfold. Just follow me. Just follow me. I love that. Those who take their stands on riches or whatever it will be, they will have nothing to stand on at all. Those who stand on their own goodness, they have nothing to stand on at all. But those who give up everything in order to follow Jesus, he says, they will be blessed, even though they're not going to be perfect. Jesus says something here also that I thought interesting. When he comes back, he's, he's, he's telling them this, this blessing, and he calls them children. I don't know if you noticed that. It's the first time in Mark, that we see Jesus calling them children. It's like he's trying to reach them up to what has just been said about children are the ones who enter the kingdom of God. Children just want to be with their parents that love them and care for them. And they're really not worried about what everybody else thinks. In fact, they usually don't even think about what everyone else thinks. Someone recently kind of reminded me of this. They went to Disney World one, a while back or whatever, and, and while they were there, they saw this, this father with his little boy. 
And this father, he had clothes that they didn't match. He had on black socks that were pulled up with shorts. He had this whole tourist, uh, nerdy vibe going on, right? But his son, he thought he was the coolest guy in the world. You know why? Because he brought him to the happiest place on earth. That kid wouldn't trade that moment for every possession that he had because he was with his father who loved him and wanted to give him good things. Our father wants to give us eternal life. He paid the price for the admission. He wants us to be with him. He isn't well liked by our world despite creating this world and, and literally dying for it. But if we are his child, we push out the negatives of the world and see the Father who, is, who and who he is. We struggle to envision a life without things that we cherish and yet there's a greater danger to losing the only life that counts. This is about following Jesus. Letting him continue to chisel your life to be the disciple he wants you to be. And for some of you, it may all be about money. That may be where you are. For some of you, it may be about your own goodness, and, and you feel like it's, it's up to you to get to heaven. But for others of you, it may be something else. It, but the whole point is, be willing to give up everything in order to follow Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. It all begins with this faith and this trust. Folks, that's, that's where we are. And those who really want to be saved, that's, this is, folks, this is where it begins. It begins with Jesus. It ends with Jesus. It's about, you know what, no matter where I am, Jesus, I just trust you. I'm, I'm, just, I'm putting it all before you. Just show me the way. What do you want me to do? Rather than what... God, I want you to come along with what I'm doing and what I want. You see the difference? And when we come to that point and we are ready to submit our lives, now we're ready to talk about more stuff. But let me tell you something. This first part, that's the toughie. That's the part we got to figure out. We're commanded to be baptized. That's easy. That is so easy. In fact, if I baptize you, I'm doing most of the work. I really am. I'm, pu I'm putting you back down and bringing you back up. It's important, but you know what? That's the easy part. This is where it begins. This right here. Faith and trust in Jesus. To take my life and to take it wherever it needs to go. Strip me, Lord, of whatever it may be in my life that is preventing me from following you. If we can help you in any way this morning. We want to do that. If we, we can pray for you in any way or even afterwards, please let us know. But let's now stand and as we sing.